Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning on this beautiful summer Sunday. And Lord, we've assembled together. Lord, our purpose is to worship you. We ask that you would give us the free work of your Holy Spirit in each heart and life. Lord, that we would be able to get rid of the veneers and the pretend and truly understand and live your word. We ask that you would guide us as we sing these songs in praise and worship to you. And Lord, we're so thankful that when you save us, it's not about us. It's all about you. And we ask that we would lift up your name and glorify you today in everything that is said and done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the children that are in the Toddlers and Children's Church will ask you to be dismissed at this time. The rest of us, let's uh, take a moment and just read our theme verses for the year. If you want to look them up uh, in your Bible, we'll first read Psalm 46 and uh, verse 10. Psalm 46, verse 10 says, Be still and know that I am God. The rest of the verse that's not on our banner says, I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10 says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. Now, we've chosen those verses to be a theme for this year to remind us to help us to think uh, along certain lines and and realize that we we live in a crazy world. How many of you have too much to get done in the average week? I mean, it's just not going to happen. I mean, uh, if you don't see me, I'll, I'll give you enough that will overload you um, on on top of what you have. None of us are looking for extra things to do in there. There are very few people out there that just, well, I'm just not sure what I'm going to do today. Uh, most of us have more on the schedule than we can possibly hope to achieve. And even in spite of that, we've got to take time to be still and know who God is. Because if we don't, all of our effort is in vain. We must be reminded that each one of us is going to stand personally, privately, alone, before God, the judge of all the earth, the creator of this universe in which we live. And we're going to have to give an account. You think that's why Jesus told Mary, the sister of Martha, that she had chosen that good part? And it wasn't going to be taken away from her because she 
sat at Jesus' feet. She was living this verse. Be still and know that I am God. But have you ever met someone that had great knowledge? I mean, they just knew everything there was to know. Except to come in out of the rain. You ever met anybody like that? Uh, We actually had a president of the United States gave the longest inaugurational address in the history of the United States and died less than a month later of pneumonia that he caught while delivering his inaugural address. That not a good place to be. Uh, President Harrison, I, I believe, was the offender in that case. Be still and know that I am God. But when we know Him, God does not save us. So we can do nothing. Heaven is not going to be sitting on a cloud and strumming a harp and doing nothing all day. Heaven, we are going to be busier there than we ever have been. And it's all going to be connected to the praise and worship of the Lord. And this morning, what I would like for us to do is go to another passage here. In fact, we're going to go to two other passages. I want you to turn with me to the book of Galatians. Many times I I like to keep the verse that we're doing the commentary on uh, till the very end. But uh, this morning I feel like I'd like to give you this verse at the outset of the message. I want you to keep these three verses, our theme verses and this verse, Galatians chapter 2 and, and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, if you've been around this church at all, you're familiar with this verse. I I refer to it many, many times. It is uh, one of those verses that sums up the essence of, uh, of true Christianity, of, of what a living relationship with the living God entails. Now, Paul says, I am crucified. Now, that term simply meant put to death. That's how Jesus died. He said, I am crucified with Christ. How many times we will be reminded throughout all eternity. It was me that deserved to die on that cross. It was you that deserved to die on that cross. It was our sins for which Jesus paid the price. It would take every person who ever lived an eternity in hell to accomplish what Jesus, as the Son of God, was able to do 
in that one time event, in that single day on which he hung on the cross. If you want to evaluate the power of the living God, the power of his resurrection, think of it in that light. That God in his holiness cannot allow one sin into heaven. And yet in his power and in his love, Jesus died in the place of every human being that ever lived and paid the price for all of our sins. Yet he accomplished that in one day. What would take the sum total of all humanity and eternity. By the way, the word eternity means without end. If God gave us a hundred billion years, it would not begin to satisfy God's holiness. Yet Jesus was able to suffer and pay the price for those sins and accomplish it in a period of time that we can look back. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I'm still alive. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This morning, I'd like to preach on terrifying faith. I've often joked uh, uh, about that uh, over the years when we were doing, when we were in the midst of the purchase of this property and and sometimes a preacher would make a comment about, uh, Brother Montoro, you must have so much faith to raise all that money to buy that building. And said, no, uh, it's terrifying at times. Uh, I'm scared to death, but I know God is going to do something. Praise God, he brought us through that time. And the building's been completely paid for for, for a long time. And we praise the Lord for that. And then came union. And we're still working through that thing. And it seems like every time we just get to the point where this is my final list of things before we call the building inspector and get the building reopened, something else happens. But we're supposed to live by faith, are we not? How, how do we do that in a real sense? I like the quote that my father-in-law, Brother John Marshall, uses. He said, there's a fine line between faith and foolishness. I just never have found the line. And I've met a lot of people doing a lot of foolish things and trying to blame it on God. And I've met a lot of people who claim that they have a faith. And it doesn't work. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. And then I meet people that it almost seems like they're not paying attention. And yet they're serving God and God is using them. And so what I want us to do is use the Bible as a commentary to... Shed some light, because if, if you're here in this auditorium this morning, 
you need to be living Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. How many would say, preacher, I, I agree with you there. Could you say amen to that? But how many of you want to come to the end of yourself? How, how many of you really, really want to know what it is to live by the faith of the Son of God? Now, our story this morning, I believe, will illustrate that as well as any of a real and living story. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4, if you would. Mark chapter 4. Now, Jesus had been teaching the disciples, if you read Mark chapter 4, verse 1 says, And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. Now, one of the things that you have to understand, uh, if, if you're not going to be confused by the stories in the Bible, is Jesus did this more than once. There were many, many times that Jesus sat down and taught the multitude. In fact, uh, he would teach some of the same things over again. Uh, if you will listen very closely, you will hear things repeated by your pastor. Uh, I've been here twenty, almost 25 years Uh now, we've gone through almost the entire Bible, verse by verse. Very, very few passages uh, have, have we uh, uh, not gone through uh, parts of Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, some of the prophets. But for the most part, we've, we've been through the vast majority of this Bible. And so Jesus was teaching, and he was teaching the parables, and he was teaching them all day. And if you'll remember from our study of the parables, Jesus was the only one who has ever effectively used this teaching method in the way that he did. Because as Jesus would explain truth to the ignorant and the unlearned, as he would teach them and give them knowledge... He was confusing the educated and the self-righteous and the wise. Jesus was drawing those who wanted the truth to him at the very same time. And with the very same words, he was pushing away those who didn't want the truth. I want to challenge no other teacher has ever accomplished that. Not the way Jesus did. And you wonder why these Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests were so angry. It was because every sermon they understood, he was talking about them and their sin. He was talking about their false religion and their false understanding and their unwillingness to surrender their lives to the truth of the Scripture. But I want to challenge you that the disciples, while Jesus was teaching this whole day, were sitting there and listening. And then Jesus explained to the disciples the parables. 
You know, Jesus didn't explain all these parables to the multitude. I mean, today we read our Bible and uh, I would not think of coming into this pulpit and just reading one of the parables that Jesus taught and, and not giving some explanation. But you have to realize that Jesus, when he gave the parable of the sower, he just simply said a, a sower went out and sowed seed and some of it fell on the good on the wayside and the fowls of the air devoured it up and some of it uh, uh, fell into the stony ground and, and uh, spr- sprung up immediately and was withered and actually before that was the the fell into the thorny ground and some fell on the good ground and brought forth a harvest some thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. And that that was the end of the sermon. I mean say, boy, that really blessed me. You see, we're not trying to make light, but the disciples came back for the teaching part. And see, what we're endeavoring to do here today is be the disciples of Jesus. Amen? And so, therefore, I'm under an obligation to give the teaching part and explain those things and, and how that the sower is the person that takes the gospel into this world. Every one of us have that responsibility, do we not? And not everybody you give a gospel tract to is going to get saved. Some, I've watched them do this, tear it up in little pieces and throw it on. I had one guy one time tear it up in little pieces and come back and stuff it in my shirt pocket. At least he wasn't a litter bug, right? He was trying to show his disgust for me and the message I had. You know what? I could take that personal. And while his finger's in my pocket, I could put my fist in his face. Now, couldn't I? And, and, and legally, I'd have a right to do that because he's touching me. But is that the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of true Christianity? No. You have to tell no to the flesh. And part of that parable understands that is some people... Their hearts are hard and they're not going to receive the word no matter what. Some people are going to receive the word and it's going to grow up and the thorns and the cares of this life are going to pull them away from the truth. There are others. Boy, it's going to look so good. I mean, they grew up fast and start flowering right away, but they have no root. And the moment real testing comes, they're going to wither. But if you've ever planted a garden, you've got to understand one thing. It takes time. You've got to go out and prepare the soil. If you do it right, you prepare the soil for the spring in the preceding fall. That's when you put the fertilizer in and you till the ground and, and get it all turned under so that that decomposing process can happen through the winter and then in the spring when you till the ground again, uh, all of that has been absorbed out of those, uh, out of the things that you have put in there, your fertilizer and things, and now you have soil. 
that is ready to grow something. And then you plant the seeds and you go out there every day and you look at it, right? Well, not if you know about gardens. You plant the seeds and you go out and you look for weeds, but you you don't worry about it because it's going to take a week or so before the first little shoots start up out of the ground. And many times it'll take two, sometimes upwards of three months for that fruit to come fully ripe and ready for the harvest. It takes time. And that's what Jesus was teaching in his parables. Could could I challenge you in the first part of our story today that the disciples were being still and that they knew who God is and they were learning about him? Could we say amen to that? Now, I want you to skip down with me to verse 35. You see, Jesus knew what the test was. How many of you like tests? Somebody said, as long as there are tests, there will be prayer in public schools. And I I believe that. But God doesn't answer most of those prayers. Because he's not going to answer a prayer if you didn't study first. Uh, he's not going to answer that prayer if you're not seeking Him and His will. It's, but Jesus was ready to give the disciples a test. You see, real faith and real relationship with God is not about what you know. It's about who you are. Because who you are will determine what you do when you're put to the test. Isn't that true? When they train our soldiers and and our our military people, especially the uh, special forces guys, if you've ever heard any of them talk or read any of their books, they'll tell you, in the hot zone, in the combat, you do not have time to think. All you have time to do is to do what you were trained to do. And you see, when we're put to the test by faith, whatever is in you, whatever you've trained yourself to do, or better yet, what you've allowed Jesus to train you to do is going to come out. It's going to be be made plain. That's why so many of us need to get one of those little staples buttons. You've seen those things. And take the word staples off there and put panic across it, right? Because every time something goes wrong, you just want to press the panic button. When in doubt, run in circles, scream and shout. It doesn't get anything done, but at least makes you feel a little better about it. Now, doesn't it? Actually, that could be about the worst thing you could possibly do. The disciples were about to get tested. The only problem was they weren't paying attention. Now, let's just read our story here. Verse 35. And the same day when even was come. Now, Jesus had been teaching all day. Now, aren't you glad my sermons only last about an hour? Uh, How would you like a six-hour sermon? And then... Jesus says, let's row to the other side. That's about five miles. How many of you have ever been on a boat 
five miles in one direction to another, other than a New York City ferry. They do all the work themselves. I mean, I'm talking about self-propelled here. Uh, I'll tell you, we've been on a few little canoe trips over the years and different things, and five miles in a canoe will teach you that you have muscles in places that you didn't even know could hurt because they're hurting. Uh, unless you do that kind of stuff all the time, you're, you're not ready for it. But now these disciples, they did it all the time. And Jesus said, when even was come, let us pass over unto the other side. Now, Jesus was making a simple command, a simple direction. He said, listen, we need to get across from this side of the Sea of Galilee to that side. Now, that's not very complicated, was it? In fact, he was speaking to Peter and Andrew and James and John, who grew up on those waters. They were fishermen. They knew every little cove and every hot spot. And, and they had been across and back and forth across that sea so many, many times. This was old hat. You see, the disciples knew something. They couldn't teach like Jesus did, though they would. That's what the book of Acts is all about. Amen? They couldn't do the miracles that Jesus did yet, though they would do some miracles in the book of Acts. But they could get across the Sea of Galilee. In fact, they had experience getting across the Sea of Galilee. They knew every part of getting across the sea. It, this was old hat. This was something that was not even in their mind that it would take any special effort or knowledge to get this done. How many of you see where we're going with this? You see, Jesus knew something was going to happen on that trip. The disciples didn't. How many of you have ever just going through life and you're everything, and then all of a sudden you find yourself, wham, in a terrible situation, in adverse circumstances, everything around you is turned upside down? And what do we normally say? Boy, I wish I could have seen that. I wish I would have known this was going to happen. Well, you see, look what it says happened here in the next verse. Jesus, in verse 35, said, Let us pass over to the other side, unto the other side. Verse 36, And when they had sent away the multitude, who's they? The disciples. Who normally sent away the multitudes? Uh, Jesus did most of the time, but Jesus said, let us pass over to the other side. The disciples, they'd been sitting there. They had been learning all day. Hey, it's time for us to do something now. Jesus, you take a break. You just sit right here. And, and the disciples sent the multitudes away, and then look what they did. They took him, him as Jesus, even as he was in the ship. And they were also with him. Other little ships. So, the disciples take over. You can see Peter. 
Now listen, you take that crowd over there. I'll take this. Listen, everybody, the teaching's over. It's time to go home. You need to get some food and all of those things. If you need directions, heading south, see Andrew. And I mean, you can just see these disciples mobilized. They'd been trained by Jesus to work together, had they not? And the multitudes were dispersed orderly and, and everything went well. And, and then they took Jesus. Some commentators have said that they literally picked him up and put him into the ship. And I kind of find that hard to believe. Someone said, well, he was already in the ship. You know what I think it was? The disciples were giving instructions to Jesus. They took him even as he was. Now, Jesus, it's time to get in. You say, go the other side. Let's go. Now, when I put it that way, that really seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But you know, that is human nature. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have given your boss instructions at work? Stop and think about it a minute. You got a job. You know what you're doing. Maybe your boss isn't quite as cued in on your specific area of expertise as you might be. But is that the way it's supposed to work? I mean, often as we're working at Union, I mean, this is a, just a plethora of illustration material. Is we'll open up a brand new nightmare. Dig a hole and find all kinds of terrible things that we're supposed to be there that aren't, and the things that are supposed to be there, uh, just you just sitting there and go, what in the world am I going to do? And immediately I hear little voices coming in from all sides. Well, Dad, we could. Well, what if we did? And I'm, I just want to go, I wasn't asking you. How many times has the Lord said that to you and to me? Why didn't he do that with the disciples? Because he's so patient with us. Amen. And he's so full of love. God will never demand for you to ask his advice. But sometimes he'll put you in a set of circumstances where you won't have any other choice. Amen? But you still have to choose. You ever wonder why Jesus went to sleep in the ship? It's because the disciples didn't need Jesus to get across the lake. If Jesus wasn't being consulted, if he did, they weren't asking for help, they weren't asking for his direction, it would have been 
not very prosperous for him to offer direction at this time because the disciples had already made up their mind this was something they could handle. And so Jesus went to sleep. Now the terror comes. A great storm of wind, the Bible tells us. Let's make sure I got that right there. In verse 37, and there arose a great storm of wind. Now, how many of you know what the, the geography here, the Sea of Galilee is really up on a high plateau. Uh, there are mountains all around it. And it's like a huge basin. It's the origin of the Jordan River. The exit or the drain from the Sea of Galilee is the source of the Jordan River. And it runs down and into the Dead Sea. And the reason the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea is because it has no exit. All the water comes in, evaporates, and the salt ratio there is like five or six times that of the ocean. And it kills everything in the sea. So, here we have this rather small sea, it's called in the Bible, a large lake, but even by comparison to what we call the Great Lakes in the United States, the Sea of Galilee would be very small. You could fit a dozen of them in one of the Great Lakes. And so, as the wind comes down, what it does is it begins to move the water. Now, when you take water and you slosh it one way, what happens? It comes back the other way now, doesn't it? Well, that's what happens in the Sea of Galilee every time a windstorm comes up. The wind pushes the water one way until there's so much water pushed that way that the wind can no longer push it, and then the water comes back and until... It has no more strength to stop the wind. And, then, and so you can imagine how turbulent the waters would get. And so this storm of wind comes up and the waves begin to rise. And the Bible says the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. I love this. Boat in the water. Good. Water in the boat. Say it out loud. Bad. Boat full of water. Luke chapter 8, it says they were in jeopardy. How many of you did you know that was a real word and not just a name for a game show? Huh? Um, it means in danger of your life. Now, how in the world asking a bunch of silly questions puts you in danger of your life? I don't know. Maybe it's a misconomer. But the word jeopardy means in deadly danger. And that's where they found themselves. Now, let me ask you a question. Had the disciples been still? Did the disciples know Jesus is God? Did they not learn from Him as He taught them during the day? 
So why did they wait until the boat was full of water to bother Jesus? Because they were so trained to take care of things themselves. You see, Jesus was trying to break an ugly habit here. It's called self-reliance. We rely upon ourselves. And so, they had faith of a sort. They knew who Jesus was theologically. But look at the next verse here as we go through our story. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Now, I I love word pictures. and, And I want you to listen real close here to try to get this. There were 12 disciples in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, chances are this boat was somewhere between... 12 and 25 feet long, not not a large boat, but certainly a little bigger than you would rent at the marina. It's full of water, and you have Jesus laying in the back. Now, the biblical word pillow is not just something for your head. It was something that you slept on. It was like a, a mat or a mattress almost. That's what <clears throat> Jacob used stones for his pillows. He was not using a pillow for, a rock for a pillow for his head and one in the middle of it. No. He he was moving around boulders big enough to sleep on because the scorpions and the snakes and stuff wouldn't necessarily have a more difficult time getting to him if he were not sleeping on the ground. That's what it was. And so Jesus had this little mat or something in the back of the boat And I just love the picture of the water up about waist deep. Lapping at his upper body. And uh, he's just there with his eyes closed. Breathing regular, peaceful. Totally oblivious to everything that was around him. But was he? Absolutely not. He is God. He knows everything. And the disciples come. And they see him sleeping there. All of a sudden they get upset. Here we are. We've been working on this boat. We bailed water till we can't bail water anymore. We've done everything in our power and this guy is asleep. He doesn't care. You know, I've heard Christians say that many times. They uh, get into a set of adverse circumstances and they'll accuse God of not caring. Look what the disciples say here. Middle of verse 38. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? We're going to die. 
And you're not even going to wake up unless we do it for you. That sounds pretty absurd now, doesn't it? But who had ignored Jesus at the beginning of our story? They dispersed the multitudes. They took him even as he was. Uh, I, I don't believe that they carried him to the ship or any. any it, it's just a way of saying that they were giving Jesus instruction to get into the ship and go with them. It was their show. And Jesus said, listen, if this is your show, I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to get something good out of this situation, even if you're not. Next time you find yourself in a terrifying set of circumstances, you you need to stop and take a little notice. And maybe ask yourself the question, did I get here by ignoring my Lord and His direction? Or did I get here by depending upon my Lord in His direction? It might give you a different perspective as to what's going on. And by the way, could I just remind you, where was Jesus as the disciples are talking about their terrible plight in this ship? And this ship is going to sink and everybody on it is going to die. Where was Jesus? He's in the same boat. Normally, when a boat is sinking or something like that, what is the number one rule that we have nowadays? Women and children first, isn't that true? And we wake people up and let them know they're in danger and they need to get off the boat. And the disciples didn't care a thing about the Lord. They were too busy worried about their own skin. They didn't say, Lord, don't you understand we're all going to drown you included here? That would have been a more uh, realistic assessment of the situation. But, you see, when we get into trouble, the only thing we're concerned about is me. And that's where the disciples were. And unbeknownst to them, Jesus was the one who put them there. He was giving them a test of faith. Well, we read that next verse. And he arose and rebuked the wind. And said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, we have this picture of Jesus. Wind! Cease! Could I challenge you? Jesus didn't do that. He rebuked the wind. Stop blowing. That's rebuking the wind, isn't it? He didn't have to lift up his voice to be heard. Because all creation is in tune with the Creator. 
He just said, stop blowing. And the wind stopped blowing. And he looked down at the waves. He said, peace, be still. It was like one of Benjamin Franklin's tricks. He would carry a cane full of oil. And when he said, I can still the waters. And he would open the end of that cane and pour the oil on the water. And wherever the oil was, the water would be still. Neat little trick. Don't do it. The EPA will arrest you. And I mean, But anyway, all Jesus did was speak. And now I want to challenge you that the disciples were more afraid of Jesus than they were of their impending death just a few moments prior to Jesus standing up and speaking. Terrifying faith, is it not? When is the last time you allowed yourself to be so impressed with the power of Jesus Christ that it made you stop paying attention to everything else. Sometimes the Lord has to put us in terrifying situations to separate us from our reliance on ourselves so that we can fully put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, say, preacher, been there, done that. Hello? Okay, I got a few people agreeing with me. Well, get ready to do it again. And again. Because our flesh constantly rebels against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want us to go back to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And I want us to look at that verse one more time. See, we need to be still and know that there is that, that He is God, that that I am God. That we need to know who God is. We need to know about Him. But real faith is in the power of His resurrection. That's when Jesus stood up and said, "Stop blowing, peace, be still," and things happened. The world changed. How many of you remember the day you got saved? How many of you remember the terror that was in your soul about a place called hell? The thought that you might not make it to heaven. How many remember that song that we sang this morning, Only a Sinner Saved by Grace? The time that you finally realized what being a sinner is actually is that your sin has offended the creator God of the universe, that your sin is so huge, no matter how many good works you would do, how much money you put in the offering plate, no matter what you would give yourself to, you cannot save yourself. How many of you remember that? 
How many remember the relief that came across your soul when you simply prayed that prayer of faith and said, Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I believe you died on the cross to pay the price for my sins and that you rose again from the dead. And I ask you to save me. Now, don't take me wrong here. The sinner's prayer, it's not in the words. One man prayed this prayer according to Jesus. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus saved him. The Bible says, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So that's what Paul was talking about when he said, I am crucified with Christ. I've accepted his death in my place. I've accepted his resurrection. I deserve to die, but Jesus died in my place. And in God's eyes, my sin debt has been paid as if I were nailed on that cross. The only problem is I can't resurrect. That's why Jesus had to do it for me. Amen? Nevertheless, I live. God did not save you just so you could go to heaven. If he did, the moment you got saved, you'd die and go to heaven. Nevertheless, I live. You know what? The disciples were living when they took Jesus as he was and put him in the ship and gave him instruction and tried to get him across the Sea of Galilee only to find out that They couldn't go anywhere with Jesus unless he was in charge. How many of you have ever struggled with that? If you're alive, you have. Jesus does not need our instruction. He does not need our help. Something so simple... Something they had done a thousand times. Crossing the Sea of Galilee. But they learned that after they had believed on Jesus, they couldn't even do the things they were accustomed to doing. The things they knew how to do. The things they had expertise in. They couldn't do it. Without depending on the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God. You see, it wasn't the disciples' faith that moved Jesus to still the waters. Jesus had already said, we're going to the other side. What is faith? Obedience to God's Word. If Jesus didn't still the storm, were they getting to the other side? No way. So Jesus simply fulfilled his word in stilling the storm. Now that storm could have been stilled maybe before they even got on the boat. If they had just stood behind Jesus and continued waiting on his direction and his leadership instead of trying to assert their own. Amen? You see, 
sometimes we accuse God not caring about my situation when we're the ones that ask him to go to sleep and let us alone so we could get something done for him. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? That's why Jesus had to terrify the disciples, literally. They were scared for their lives. They knew that any moment the next wave would turn that boat over and they would have a maximum life expectancy of about a minute and a half in those choppy storm-tossed waves. They were waiting to die when they woke Jesus up. And if they thought they were afraid then, as soon as he opened his mouth, they were even more terrified. Because all he did was say, stop, and the wind stopped blowing. Peace, be still, and the waves stopped moving. Do you think they knew a little bit more about God after that experience than before? Amen? Do you think they understood a little bit more about the power of His resurrection, having seen Him stop the waves in the storm? By the way, who had to bail the boat out yet? The disciples! Jesus stopped the storm, but I don't think he bailed the boat out. The disciples were the ones who were responsible for it being filled with water. I think he just let them empty it, don't you? I mean, that's, that's, that, that is just imagination, but somebody had to get the water out of the boat, otherwise it wasn't going anywhere. Now, here's the sermon today. Number one, have you been crucified with Christ? Are you saved? Are you trusting in Jesus and Him alone for your eternity? If you're not, we're going to have an invitation in a few moments and you can settle that thing. Not based on what the preacher says, but based upon the words of this book called the Bible. How many would say... Preacher, I know I'm saved. But I think I've seen myself a little bit in this story. Maybe giving Jesus a few instructions. Maybe trying to do something that we know how to do without full dependence and trust on the Lord. You know, you can do the right thing for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way and God won't bless it. We need to be completely dependent upon our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. It's not me. It's Christ. It's faith in me. Obedience to Christ and His Word that makes me walk the way I walk and talk the way I talk. Do the things I do. Christianity is not just a descriptive word for non-Muslim, non-Buddhist, and non-whatever. It means a relationship and life that imitates the Lord Jesus Christ. A life at His direction 
a life that is lived by faith that belongs to Jesus, not to me. That's the problem with the TBN crowd, is their faith belongs to them. You know where my faith belongs? My faith belongs to Jesus. It's His. It's not mine. This is His book. Amen? This is where faith comes from. It belongs to Him. We need to live in it each and every day. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we ask that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to apply this Scripture to our hearts that we could see a little more clearly into this verse and understand what it truly means. Lord, my prayer is that we would not have one person in this auditorium who would be of those that believe but not to the saving of the soul. Lord, there's not a one of us that isn't carrying heavy burdens. That isn't struggling with circumstances and difficulties in this life. Lord, I pray that we would wake up and honestly evaluate where we are. And Lord, if we got there by giving you instruction, even trying to follow your word, that we would just as the uh, Proverbs say, lay our hands on our mouth and repent and come back to you and surrender our lives that we may live for you at your direction. Lord, help us to live this verse, to be crucified with Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, it's got to be all of you. None of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as Andrew comes to lead the hymn of invitation. If you need to come and pray, the altar's open. If you're here today and you're not sure about your salvation, would you allow someone to take the Bible and just show you what it means to be saved? Just look this way as you come down the aisle. As we sing, would you join these that have come?